Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6? We're going to look in Hebrews 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Would you hear now God's word from Hebrews 6, 13? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and on all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, if there was any time I wish you would transcend the limits of a 20-minute sermon, and speak your word to the hearts of your people by the power of your Holy Spirit, I wish that day is today. Would you speak your love, this sure and steadfast anchor of our hope, into our souls this morning, we ask by the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, I saw a ridiculous YouTube video a couple of weeks ago, which was uh, a bridge that's been built somewhere in China that's a glass bridge that makes this huge expanse, but it's completely see-through. So the bridge is safe. It's totally secure. Maybe you guys have seen this. Uh, And you get to watch this video in just gleeful delight as grown men start to walk across this bridge and then they just collapse in utter terror. I mean, they fall on their hands and knees weeping because they just can't cross a bridge that they can see all the way down to the bottom. You have wives and friends that are literally trying to drag them across this bridge. It's It gives me way more delight than it ever should. (laughs) Maybe because I feel that way on the Baptist Hospital Bridge that crosses Sumter Street. I mean, this thing is terrifying. Well, the writer to the Hebrews shares this kind of dilemma in a way. He's talking to this church, and he's talking to us, and he's trying to convince us that even though God is calling us to something very scary, he's calling us to entrust our lives to Jesus, our very selves and our souls, our time and our energy and all of our money. We call Jesus Lord, and we've entrusted ourselves to him, and we're afraid of where that is going to lead The writer to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus can bear that weight. Jesus can take us and he can hold the weight of our lives and our eternal lives. And so to do this, to drag us across this bridge with him, he's going to tell us that his goal for us is our hope. He's going to give us an example of that hope. And then he's going to anchor that hope in the person of Jesus. And we're going to look at these three things just very briefly. The goal for, that he has for us is our hope. Look back just in verses 11 and 12 where I'm going to paraphrase. And he says, And we desire each one of you to have hope 
and to inherit the promises. Hope is the goal. This is my desire for each one of you. I want every single one of you to have hope. Hope is an absolute game changer in any set of circumstances. Paul says very famously in 1 Corinthians 13, you have faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, but I'm just impressed that hope made the list. Because if I don't have hope, I don't have anything. If I don't have hope, I'm not getting out of bed in the morning. If I don't have hope, I don't care about the future. I don't care about the present. I don't care about other people, and I don't care about myself. You can ask any doctor, any teacher, any lawyer, any stock market analyst, any driver's ed instructor, hope is everything. Hope is the stuff, the fuel, the fiber of life. If we don't have hope, we don't have anything. And so the writer pleads, may the end of all things, where this is all leading, may the end of all things, which is to inherit the promises of God, may that end give you hope today, and may your hope endure to the end. That's my prayer for you, the writer of the Hebrews says. May you have hope. And so when he explains this, when he thinks about this, when he exhorts us to hope, the mind of the writer goes immediately to a premier example of hope in the scriptures, and that is the person of Abraham. Remember back to the book of Genesis and the story of the person of Abraham. When the writer is thinking about hope, he's thinking about Abraham, and he's thinking about this story. When Abraham was 75 years old and had no children, God made an absolutely incredible, ridiculous promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you and I'm going to make you into a great nation so that you will not be able to number your offsprings and through your seed, I'm going to bless the entire world. Abraham, he hears that crazy promise and he has a crazy response. He believes God. He hears God's word and he believes him. He puts his hope in God and he becomes an example of hopeful expectation. Now Abraham, when he got that promise, he had to wait 25 years before Sarah had their son Isaac. And verse 15 in our passage describes that entire season of waiting as having patiently waited. You see that phrase there in verse 15. Now that's a tad euphemistic to describe that season for Abraham. Having waited patiently kind of sums up the 25 years, but when you flip back to Genesis, you realize there was actually a little more involved there, right? Abraham doubted God at times. He questioned God. He wrestled with what God was saying to him. There's even an illegitimate son mixed into that season of waiting. Abraham truly wrestled with God to receive and believe in this promise. I'm not trying to throw Abraham under the bus when I expose these things about him. I just don't want you to picture this elderly man passively waiting for the promise of God with hands outstretched like a Presbyterian benediction. He's not just standing here waiting to receive the blessings of God. He's wrestling, he's struggling, and he reminds us that human hope is a hairy thing. Human hope is a gnarled thing. Human hope is always and forever tainted. 
On the one hand, it can drift into a person who is naive and idealistic. On the other hand, it can descend into the person who's sarcastic and cynical about anything that God might do or say. And in a moment's notice, something like hope, it can revert back to self-reliance and trusting ourselves to achieve what God is promising to do in us. Human hope is a tainted thing. But even so, Abraham hopes in God, he trusts God, he waits 25 years, and he obtains the promise. God gives Abraham what he promised. And when he does this, and this is important, there becomes a precedent set in scripture that God can make absolutely stupendous, hard-to-believe promises, delivering them perfectly in his timing, despite less-than-perfect hope. God can do this. He can speak a word of promise, and he can deliver on that promise, even where our hope is shaky. That becomes the example, that becomes the precedent that's set for us. Okay, so the writer to the Hebrews, he set everything up for us. He said, here's what your goal is. Your goal is to have hope. Here's the example of your hope. It's in the person of Abraham and what happened in his story. And now he says, I want you to understand the content of your hope, the anchor of your hope, what it is that your hope is in. Most of us in this room already know that the answer, the anchor, is the person of Jesus But there's actually more here that he wants to tell us about our anchor. Here's how he begins. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and I want us to stop right there. He's beginning to set up what God is going to do. He wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. This is what's happening. God is finding himself in a very delicate situation. God wants to convince us, you and I, that he will remain true and faithful to every single promise that he has made, but he knows that you and I struggle with doubt and suspicion and cynicism. I mean, if Abraham, if Abraham in all his lying and doubting and cheating and grumbling and illegitimacy, if Abraham is our best example of hope in scripture What hope do you and I have to be a hopeful people? How can we even attain to that? And God knows this, and this is what's so beautiful about this section of Hebrews. God is wrestling with, how do I communicate this promise to my people? I know they're going to doubt. I know they struggle with faith. I know they're suspicious of what I'm going to do and say. How can I communicate to my people that when I make a promise, I am going to prove it true? I think you and I, we get so caught up in our personal battle with doubt, we forget that God is waging a war for faith. He's working on our behalf, not just in the promise itself, but in the fact that we might be a people who hopes in the promise that God is going to deliver. So this is what God does in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. I don't know if you guys have ever been in this situation. You're at a party, you're hanging out with friends, you're at work, 
and you want to convince somebody of something, and so you go to swear by something, but you realize that you're the only immutable, changeless, eternal being in the room. Ever have that happen? No, you haven't had that happen because that's only true of God. What's God going to do when he wants to swear by something to prove it's true? He can't swear on his mother's grave because God has no beginning or end. He can't swear on the Bible because God wrote the thing. He can't swear on the sun or the moon or the stars because God is going to roll the entire thing up like a scroll. When God swears by himself, when he takes this promise and locates it in an oath in himself, he swears by the only fixed point that cannot change in the universe. Everything else that you see and can't see, that you can touch and feel and smell and can't perceive in this physical universe, everything else is fading, it's changing, It's wasting away. Moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But there is one ever fixed point and it is the person of God himself. And when God goes to swear, he swears by himself that these things are true. The greatest assurance that God can possibly give us for anything is to say that that thing is so. And if he speaks it, It's true. If he says it, it won't change. If those words drift and proceed from the mouth of God, they are an ever-fixed point on which to trust. God makes this promise. He swears by this oath of himself. What is the content of our hope? What is it that God is swearing to? He tells us in verses 19 and 20. We have this, this is what it is. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now let's understand that just briefly for a moment because he's making an obscure tabernacle reference. He's talking about getting behind the inner curtain. We remember, because we've been reading on Sunday morning, that God, when he delivered his people out of Egypt, he told them to build a tabernacle. This was going to be a tent, also called a tent of meeting, where God was going to make his presence felt among the people of Israel. They literally built this tent, and they traveled with it into the promised land, and then they put that tent first at Shiloh, and this is where people could come and worship God. Now, in Exodus, the instructions for the tent are very straightforward, and as a part of that tent of meeting, the tabernacle, there was to be a place that is separated by a curtain that is called the Holy of Holies. This is where the ark is. This is where the mercy seat is. This is where God, in a very special and radiant way, is going to dwell among his people. In fact, in such a powerful way that nobody can approach the Holy of Holies. It can only be entered once a year and only by the high priest. That person passes through the curtain to confess the sins of the people. We're going to learn later in the book of Hebrews that the reason we get all these details in Exodus, it dominates the second half of the book of Exodus, the building of the tabernacle. The reason we get all that is because this is a copy, this is a shadow of what exists in God's presence in heaven. 
We don't understand this, but in some way, when we look at the earthly tabernacle among the people of Israel, we are seeing this dim shadow of what right now is in the very presence of God. In some way, shape, or form, this worship is happening before God, and he exists behind this heavenly curtain in the Holy of Holies. Our passage is playing on this double reference and saying that Jesus has passed through that curtain into God's perfect heavenly dwelling. So take a step back and look at the metaphor as a whole. Writer to the Hebrews is saying, look, our lives are like ships. We're on this raging ocean and we're being tossed back and forth. Any doubt we experience, any pang of guilt, any time we struggle with pursuing Jesus and following him yet one more day and we're tempted to give up. It feels like our lives are being thrown about by these waves and left to ourselves. We would be lost at sea. But God takes a hold of the life of a saint and he places us inside of this anchor of his son And he lodges us beyond the curtain and into the very radiant, holy of holies presence of God himself. That's what he does. What is the content of our hope? What is it that we trust in? What are we believing and longing for? If I was talking to somebody who didn't know Jesus or I was talking to somebody who was just a brand new believer still drinking spiritual milk, I'd say that Hebrews 6 says that our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. We trust in him and he can bear the weight of our entire lives. He is our hope. Now, if I was talking to a seasoned saint who is walking with God for any length of time, I would say, let's unpack this chapter a little bit more. Our hope is God's unchangeable promise that he has united us with his son Jesus. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are united with him. And this is God's unchangeable resolve to bring us with him through Jesus' death and resurrection and into this heavenly dwelling of God, his holy place where we will live with him forever. We've been lodged with him, we've been anchored with him, and this is the sure and steadfast hope that we have. You and I as believers, we're already in Christ. You and I were called in scripture to be seated in the heavenlies. God is going to make true on those promises, and we are one day going to become what we already are. We're going to experience this place beyond the curtain in God's very presence. Now, you've got to forgive my sentimentality because there's a Shakespeare love poem that fits this so perfectly. Sonnet 116, it talks about love as an ever-fixed mark. It talks about love as something that can endure the wildest of oceans. Can I just read a piece of this love poem to you? Listen to this. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star of every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. 
I think as we walk through the book of Hebrews, I think as we hear some of the sternest warnings in the Bible that you must endure to the end and watch out so that you are not like those who fall away, I think when we hear these examples of faith like Abraham and the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we can't help ourselves but to begin to add to the metaphor that Hebrews has given us. We think about our lives as the ships that are tossed about. We think about Jesus as the best anchor that has ever been. And then we wonder, what is it that attaches the ship to the anchor? Is it not this thin, frayed string, our hope and our faith? Is that the thing that binds the ship to the anchor? I know the anchor is not going to move. I know Jesus is not going to go anywhere. But I can't say the same thing about my hope. In fact, I fear that I won't hope as much tomorrow as I do today. I fear that this string will break and I'll be lost. But friends, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. If true love tires of unloveliness, if love gets tired of something in which it finds an alteration, that's not love at all. Even Shakespeare knows that. God has lodged his love in an ever-fixed mark. This is not a hope in the fact that we will keep on hoping. This is a hope in God. A hope that hopes for hope's sake, that we will hope tomorrow, that we will trust tomorrow, that we will believe as much tomorrow. That's a quest for a conditional kind of love. Would God love me on the basis of my hope? Will he hold fast to me on the basis of my faith? That's not what God is saying. It is hope in God himself. It is the ever-fixed mark of his unconditional love. The entire passage screams towards this interpretation. Listen to some of these words that describe God's work towards us. Inherit, promise, swear, bless, obtain, desire, heirs, guaranteed, unchangeable, refuge, strong encouragement, sure and steadfast anchor where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Friends, there is no string between the ship and the anchor. God has taken us and he has lodged us in his son Jesus and Jesus is lodged with God in his very presence and our salvation is assured. It would be easier for God to lie. It would be easier for God's unchangeable character to change. It would be easier for God to backtrack on his promise than to dislodge a saint's soul from the very presence of God. For you have died, Paul says in Colossians 3.3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're hidden with you. We're united with you. We're hidden with you. And you have passed through the heavenly curtain. And we are in God's presence even as we speak. I pray that you would give us this hope, this steady and sure hope to hold the only thing in our life that is ever fixed and will never move. And that is the person and the work of Jesus. Would you do that in our midst, we ask in his name. Amen.